Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Triscoll here. Today, we've got a very special sermon for you just in time for Halloween. It's on Satan, demons, and zombies. Oh my, if you go to markdriscoll.org, you can find a bunch more Bible teaching. I think there's 350 sermons up there, lots of blogs, weekly newsletter, including this week's weekly newsletter, where I answer the perennial question, can a demon possess a Christian? Lots of other holiday-themed items up there surrounding Satan, demons, zombies, and also the Halloween season, as well as my entire catalog of sermons and Bible teaching over the course of almost 20 years. Go to markdriscoll.org and find it all for free. Well, howdy, it's, uh, it's that weird time of year, amen? We're, we're right on the brink of Halloween. It's weird, right? You dress up your kids. Oh, Johnny, we're going to dress you up like Satan, Sally, like a witch. Uh, you two kids be like zombies, and we'll go see if we can scare the neighbors. It's a weird holiday, strange holiday. How many of you, even as Christians, you're wondering, should we even participate? Is this a good idea, bad idea? Should we scare the children that come to our house? Should we give them candy so they get diabetes? What should we do? It's a very weird, strange, peculiar holiday. It's that time of year when people are all about, you know, ghouls and goblins and ghosts and Satan and demons and zombies and it's in the video games and it's in the movies and it's in the television shows and they're knocking on your door looking for treats and 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 it raises a whole host of kind of supernatural paranormal questions that I want to try and answer in rapid succession today uh, and today's sermon is uh, Satan demons and zombies so the question is how did we get to this weird place and, and, and it's really strange as you look at the storyline of the Bible because everything starts out perfectly. There's a perfect God who makes a perfect world, a perfect environment. He makes two people who are perfect. They have a perfect relationship with one another and they have a perfect relationship with God. There's no sin, there's no Satan, there's no suffering, there's no demons or death or devastation that is yet entered into the picture. And then everything changes in Genesis chapter three, verse one. And we make this transition in human history. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now we have perfect God, perfect environment, per perfect people in perfect relationship with God and one another. And now slithering into the story comes a serpent, comes a dragon, enters this other character into human history. And when it says that he is crafty, what it means is that he's very good at being very bad. Some people are very good at being very bad. It's amazing how much time, energy, effort, attention, planning, and execution goes into evil and that which is wrong. And so now all of human history really transitions here. Let me submit to you, this is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. This is one of the most important recordings in all of human history. If you don't understand this, if you don't see this, you live in this constant fog of frustration, looking at the world and asking, why is it so dark? Why are things bad? Why are things hard? Why are people harmed? Why is life like this? And every election cycle, we're trying to elect someone that'll make it all better. Every time we raise taxes, we're trying to spend money to make it all better. Every time we wage a war, it's to defeat an enemy so that we can make it all better. And you know what? It never gets any better. And even if it gets better for a little while, it invariably reverts back to a bad place where people are suffering, where life is not good, where people are hurting, and unless you know the storyline of the Bible, you don't know the problem, and as a result, you can't be aware of the solution. 
And the problem here is that there is an enemy, there is an adversary that enters into human history. Here he is called the serpent. He has a number of other names in the Bible. Um, sometimes he's also called the dragon. Revelation chapter 12 and 20 says that this serpent is a dragon. It's amazing that we live in this day when so many of our cultural narratives and stories, sci-fi, uh, horror films, video games, just gravitate toward this biblical imagery of serpents and dragons. It's all very supernatural and spiritual. Sometimes he's called the enemy and you need to know that, that he's your enemy that he's not going to help you in any way, he's going to harm you in any way that he can. Sometimes he's called the adversary, he's against you, he's your opponent. How many of you, when you're trying to walk with God, you're trying to do what's right, you're trying to live a better future for yourself, for your family, you find a lot of opposition? It's like you're running into a strong headwind. That's because you have an adversary, you have an enemy, you have an opponent, you have one who is against you and seeking to thwart you. He's also called the destroyer, sometimes he's called the devil. That's a judicial term. It's like he's an attorney who's always keeping sort of record. Here's everything you said that was wrong and everything you did that was wrong and here's all the ways that you have failed and these are all of your faults and flaws and failures and shortcomings. This is why Revelation 12.10 calls him the accuser of the children of God, that he accuses them day and night. Some of you suffer with what you would consider to be negative self-talk. You, you think you're talking to yourself, but if it sounds like this, you, then you know it's demonic. It's satanic. You are unloved. You will never change. You are unforgiven. You are beyond God's grace. You are hopeless. You are forever broken. You will never improve. You will never make a difference. Your life will never matter. Your relationships will never be reconciled. Your past will never, never, never be left in your past. And if you hear you, 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 you know that the accuser is accusing you that he has kept a record of all of your wrongs and he is condemning you, that he is shaming you, that he is opposing you, that he is seeking to defeat you and discourage you and ultimately to destroy you. And that is the work of the enemy, the adversary. The Bible also calls him the father of lies, Jesus does. Jesus says that Satan is a liar, he's the father of lies, lying is his native language, and all that he ever does is lie. Now we live in a world that is filled with satanic activity if lying counts as satanic activity. How many of you have been on the internet and found not everything there is true? Have you realized that? This election cycle, it's interesting, whether you're on the political left or the political right, both sides are angry because they would say, no one's telling the truth, the facts are not available, it's all spin and conjecture and lies. And that is in fact satanic, when, when the truth cannot be found and it is obscured and spun, that's satanic. And Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Furthermore, we hear that he is called um, one who is uh, the tempter, that he likes to tempt us to sin, that anytime you are suffering and struggling because before you is a sin that is besetting, when there is an opportunity where it is much easier for you to do that which is wrong rather than that which is right, to do that which is disobedient versus that which is obedient, you know that you're being tempted and the tempter is ultimately behind that. 
and that ultimately he is always working for death. That's why he's called the murderer, that he loves death. He wants to kill your joy. He wants to kill your relationships. He wants to kill your hope. He wants to kill your family. Ultimately, if he can get you to be depressed and even take your own life, that's ultimately a great tactic of his. And he's been incredibly successful to the degree that the number one category of prescription medications in our nation are antidepressants. Right? We live in a nation built in life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and everyone is stressed and depressed. And it doesn't matter how many dollars we spend, how many wars we wage, how many criminals we arrest, or how many elections we hold, everyone is still stressed and depressed. And it seems like everything is inevitably heading toward death and destruction. That's what it feels like. And you need to know that that is not what God is like. God is the living God. God is a good God. God is an author of life. And God has an enemy and an adversary who is really at work in human history. If you don't understand that, you won't understand that ultimately, as Ephesians says, our war is not just against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, and spirits. Behind so much of what we see is what we don't see. Behind so many that we do see are many that we do not see. And we're talking about the unseen realm of the supernatural, the paranormal, the spiritual. And ultimately, I need you to know this. I love you. And this is so important for you to understand that when you look at your life, when you look at history, when you look at your suffering, when you look at your circumstances, it's not just you and God. This is one of the great deceptions that has come. When something happens, God, why did you do that? Well, you forgot the third variable, that there is an enemy and an adversary. There is one who is against God and against those who are with God. Don't blame God for things that Satan has done. Don't blame God for things that Satan has said. Don't blame God for death that Satan has brought when God is the author of life. And I need you to pull back from your circumstances because sometimes when the enemy is pounding on us or he's harassing us or he's harming us, we forget that he even exists and we start blaming God for things that he is not responsible as the one causing those ills to occur. God is good. He's not bad. He does good, not evil. He brings life, not death. He tells truth, not lies. He sets people free. He doesn't put them in prisons. That's our God. And when you find yourself separated from that or suffering, it is very easy to wrongly think it's just me and God and he's the one who's responsible for all the pain and suffering, injustice, oppression, and evil in my life and in history. That's one of the great deceptions. And here history takes this nefarious turn toward death when the serpent enters into the equation and he is in fact very cunning, very sly, and as I said, very good at being very bad. What motivates him? What is under his effort? What is behind his war? What, what fuels this cosmic conflict and rebellion? It's ultimately pride. Satan's also into marketing. So he'll call it self-esteem or a high self-worth and he'll want to market it as a good thing, but pride is really a bad thing. That God is humble and Satan is proud. And that pride wants us to be like God, alongside of God or in place of God. Here is one depiction and description from Ezekiel 28. God says of Satan, you are the signet of perfection. No problem, right? That God created not only physical beings, but spiritual beings. There are human beings and there are angelic beings. The angels were made perfect. They were made without any sin. 
And as a result, they have no one to blame if they rebel against God but themselves. He says, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. God didn't withhold any good from the angelic beings that he created. He made them good, just as he made us good. You were in Eden, the garden of God. So he's talking about Satan here, entering into that text that I just showed you in Genesis 3.1. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. This is an angel that serves and is there to protect and defend. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And here's the ultimate problem. Your heart was proud. That out of your heart comes your life. Just like water comes out of a well, so your life comes out of your heart. When the Bible speaks 900 times of our heart, that's the seat, some center of who we are. That's the essence of who we are. That's why we talk about getting to the heart of the matter. We're getting really to the bedrock of a situation. We're talking about the heart of a person. We're getting to the essence of the person. And ultimately, Satan's problem was one of pride. God, you are high and exalted. I want to be high and exalted. God, you want to determine what is right and wrong. I want to determine what is right and wrong. God, you are self-sufficient. I want to live an autonomous, independent, self-sufficient life. You need to know that when you and I feed our pride, fuel our pride, we are participating in that which is demonic. That humility is the virtue and that pride is the vice. Now we live in a day that has completely overlooked this. We live in a culture that does not encourage humility at all. There was one book written some years ago on virtues and it walked through some of the greatest narratives in Western history and the great virtues of charity and self-control. And it tells all of these cultural narratives from the Western world, particularly American history on virtues to teach children virtues. That enormous, actually helpful book, it overlooked one virtue, humility. Because in our world, we don't think of humility as a virtue. We think of it as a vice. We think of pride as a virtue, not as a vice. I'll tell you, the problems in the world are never between the humble and the humble. Can I just make that as a case? I've never seen a head-on collision between the humble and the humble. Show up with some relational carnage in a mushroom cloud. What happened? Well, this person was humble and this person was humble and they just absolutely destroyed one another. It was shocking. The humble don't do that. That's what the proud do. The proud cause conflict. The proud are thinking of themselves, not of the other. Uh, the proud are the ones who are always about winning and they're usually not about worshiping. The heart of evil is ultimately rooted, sourced, and centered in pride. 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 Now, that being said, there are two things that show how proud Satan is. Number one, he never repents of anything. Never apologizes. How many of you, you grew up in that home, don't raise your hand, but how many of you grew up in that home with your dad? Your dad, your dad never said he was sorry for anything. Your dad just like, I don't say I'm sorry. That's, that's satanic. Any human being that never acknowledges their wrongdoing, that never apologizes, that never repents, that never says, you were right, I was wrong, that was bad, not good, me and Jesus don't have the same resume, landing the dismount every time, never making an error. Anyone who doesn't have the humility to recognize and to acknowledge that they have false flaws and failures, that's satanic. That's satanic. 
And again, we live in this culture when you, if you even look at it, it's you do bad, and then what do you do? You double down. You double down rather than humbling down. Saying, you know what, that was wrong. I apologize. Let me learn from that. Proceed forward. Not to behave that way or to speak that way again. Satan is so proud that he never apologizes. He never repents for anything he ever does. Number two, he never forgives anyone. Satan and demons, they're never forgiven and they're never forgiving. You want to know how to enter into the heart of the demonic? Be proud. Never acknowledge that you're wrong and never forgive anyone else for their sin. That's the heart of the demonic. That's the heart of the demonic. This is sort of the, the pathway that you will venture down. This is the doorway that you walk through into that which is a satanic realm of existence. All you need to say is, I will be proud. I will not apologize. And if you fail me, I will not forgive you. That's the heart of the demonic. Now, sometimes we think Rosemary's baby and, you know, flying people and all kinds of craziness. Don't believe the Hollywood hype. Let me ask you this. If pride, a lack of willingness to acknowledge your wrongdoing, and a bitter spirit that fails to forgive others, true or false, that marks much of what we would call cultural conversation today. That's what's always trending on the internet. It's never, oh, forgiveness. It's up again. It's not there. Oh, you know what's trending this week? Humility. All of these humble, that's never trending. What's always trending is pride, self-righteousness, and unforgiveness, which leads to head-on collisions and conflict. And that's the heart of the demonic. That's the heart of the satanic. That war actually started in heaven, and it has spilled its way down to the earth, that this was the heart of Satan, a created being made to love and serve God. He recruited with him some of the angels. There was a great war in heaven, and that war has now found itself upon the earth. And the way that Satan works, there are three primary categories by which he works. And here's why I want to tell you this. I want you to see things biblically. And we live in a weird day where we put sheets over kids and call them ghosts. And we think that this is all just sort of cute. But according to the Bible, when it comes to the supernatural, the demonic, the paranormal, it's very significant. And it's not to be played with. It's not to be um, in any way just sort of embraced in a fun way. I'm not saying it's a sin for kids to get dressed up. I'm not saying it's a sin for kids to eat candy. I'm not rendering verdicts on that. But I'm saying it's really weird that you'll hear a lot more about Satan, demons, and the supernatural realm in the grocery store with the holiday displays than you will in the church of Jesus Christ from the pulpit. And so it's important that I give you a biblical framework so as you go to buy your candy, you start thinking about what's going on in the world and your place in it. And there are three ways that Satan works. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says that Satan will not outwit us providing we're aware of his schemes. It's kind of like if you're going to war, you need to know, well, who's my enemy? What are their resources? They have an air force. Okay, I got to prepare for an air war. Okay, they've got a navy. I better prepare for a war at sea. They've got ground troops. Well, then I better prepare for hand-to-hand -hand combat. You need to know how your enemy works. And it really is this collision of kingdoms. It's this kingdom of darkness versus this kingdom of light, this kingdom of death versus this kingdom of life and understanding how the enemy works. It helps you as God's people to prepare. He uses the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
Those are the three primary categories that Satan uses. And when it comes to the world, uh, 1 John 2.16 says it this way, for everything in the world. And what the world is, it is the world as we make it, not as the world that God made it to be. This is everything in its fallen and flawed condition. This is the broken, corrupted, messed up, jacked up world in which we live. How many of you would look at the world and say, I don't like it? Just don't like it. How many of you stopped watching the news because you're tired of seeing reality? It's just enough. You can't stomach anymore. We live in a day when we receive so much information that we become hardened and desensitized to it. If we took a moment to feel it, we would be devastated by it. Oh, hurricane there, children hurt there, women abused there, sex traffic there, war here, people bilked out of their retirement, bankrupt there, oh, moving right along. If we took a moment to actually think, what is happening in people's lives? How are they suffering? What are they enduring? What is happening? We would never stop grieving. And that's the world. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but the world. Uh, the world has three things. The lust of the flesh, that feels good. Temptation. Lust of the eyes, that looks good. Click, 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 click. Shouldn't be looking at that. Whether it's an inappropriate photo or a bunch of online shopping and coveting. Click, 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 click. Oh, look at their house. Their house is bigger than mine. I don't like them. I'm going to make a comment. Okay? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to comment. Because I'm like God. I sit on a throne and I make comments as I peer into people's lives and all their private business. And we, we like to sit in this God seat. We like to peer into people's lives. And then we like to have opinions. And we like to get jealous. And we like to get angry. Because we got to see what, what we shouldn't have seen. And then we're going to unfriend them or unlike them or comment. Lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It's about me, not about you. It's about me, not about us. It's about me. It's not about him. All of that's worldly. Worldly. Now, let me ask you, if this is worldly, you're, you're wanting things that are not good for you, you're looking at things that you have no business looking at, and you're self-absorbed and consumed, that also could be called an American, right? I mean, we could just, this is, this is the job description for an American, but it's all worldly. And what the world is, the world is the antithesis of the kingdom. You know what? Jesus is coming back. The dead will rise. There will be a judgment. God will reset everything according to his purposes and his plan. And you know what? The way that the kingdom will look is not, is not the way that the world looks today. This is why Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom, come, because it ain't here. It's not, it needs to come. You don't see love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That's all the fruit of the spirit. What you instead see is all the works of the world. This world doesn't need a minor makeover. It needs a complete teardown and remodel. That's the world. So Satan works through the world. And let me just say, what we tend to think is, well, it's normal. No, it's not. 
What's normal is what's in the kingdom of God, not what is on the earth. Because all we've seen is the earth. We're born into a world that we think it's normal. We think it's normal that people behave this way and treat one another this way and conduct themselves this way. And God says, no, that's not normal. That's abnormal. I made the world normal. I'm going to remake the world normal. In the middle, this is all very abnormal. This is not the way it was supposed to be. This is not the way it's intended to be. This was not my intent for humanity and life on the earth. That's the world. So we can't be rather conformed to the pattern of this world, the Bible says. We have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We have to think differently, right? And for those of you who are younger, and by younger, I mean teens, 20s, I'm in my 40s. I'm not cool. I have no tattoos. I can't smoke. I shaved my beard this morning because it's white like Santa. I am not a young man. But here's what I know. When you're a young person, you think, this is normal, and we've evolved, and cultural you know, adaptation has occurred, and what happens is what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Oh, we, we do things differently than they did back in the day because we're so much more evolved. Are we? Are we? Are we? Right? Dating, relating, fornicating, kill your kids, rack up your credit card debt, get the press so that you kill yourself. I would just submit to you that's not a great plan, and it's not really a forward progress plan. This is the world we live in. It's flawed. It's broken. It ain't working. And you may say it's normal. It's normal for those who don't belong to God. For those who belong to God, our pattern is not what is normal in the world, but what is true in the presence of the king and his kingdom. Okay, so we want to live our lives not world up, but we want to live our lives kingdom down. How does God treat people? We should treat them like that. What does God want for our life? That's what we should want for our life. How does God interact with human beings? That's how we should interact with human beings. Satan works through the world and he wrongly convinces us that everything that is is just normal and this is actually progress and this is the way that things are because it's the way that things should be. The second way, it's the world, the flesh, and the flesh is your internal disposition. This is this edemic seed that's in us. It's this part of who we are that's still corrupted and has unhealthy, unholy, ungodly desires. When you become a Christian, you get a new nature, but you still have old desires. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 <clears throat> says the works of the flesh. So the world is out there. The flesh is in here. So the problem is not just out there. The problem is in here. How many of you have noticed that? How many of you have said, you know what? I'm getting off the internet. I'm going to get rid of my television. I'm going to turn my phone off. I'm going to close my eyes. And then you think bad things. <laughs> You're thinking, what am I thinking about? It's a, I have a naughty brain. What am I thinking about? It's because the problem isn't just out there. The problem is in here. This is why cultural, political, social solutions are not sufficient. Adam and Eve fell in a perfect environment. You can't look and say, oh, look at that neighborhood. It must have been the kids going to the public schools and watching all the stuff on the internet and watching the naughty television shows and, and, oh, and playing those video games. No, Adam and Eve, perfect environment, sin. Satan, perfect environment, sin. I'm all for a better environment, but the internal environment is the one that you have the most struggle controlling and constraining. Okay? Okay, we'll just read a verse. Okay. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're not evident to all, but they should be evident to those with the Spirit of God. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, fighting, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, 
These are the most searched terms on Google, just so you know, okay? People are like, oh, this is, no, that's bad. That's, this is, this is, this is the flesh. This is sinful desires unhinged, right? This, this is human nature off the leash, okay? Uh, and some of you are like, well, my thing isn't up there. Well, that's why he puts miscellaneous category. Things like these. So he got you too, okay? <laughs> he got you as well, right? I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What he says is there's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of Satan, there's the kingdom of light, there's the kingdom of darkness, there's the kingdom of life, there's the kingdom of death. And what he's saying is if you receive the Holy Spirit, you start living more for the kingdom of God than the kingdom of this world. And your desires start to be changed and your flesh starts to be conquered. It's not that you're perfect, but you're changed by Jesus and you're changing to become more like Jesus. Amen. That's the big idea. So the, the opposite of the flesh is the spirit. And this whole section here, he talks about those who are led by the spirit do not gratify the sinful desires of the flesh. So when you're struggling, you're tempted, when you see it, when you think about it, when you're desiring it, Holy Spirit, I need you to change my desires. I need to get self-control. I am not a highly evolved animal who got lucky with a thumb. I'm an image bearer of God. I'm put on the earth to worship and I am not just going to give in to my base desires. I'm going to rise above them and I'm going to walk as a citizen of the kingdom to the glory of the king. That's the point that the flesh doesn't understand. That the spirit is stronger than the flesh. The spirit is stronger than the flesh. But Satan works through the flesh. He tempts through the flesh. And I always use this analogy, an old Puritan used it. Um, Thomas Brooks in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he talks about the flesh desires uh, like, like a fisherman would go fishing. And maybe you've heard me use this analogy. When you go fishing, the first thing is you got to figure out what kind of fish are down there because different fish like different bait. And you don't really care, right? If you're fishing, how many of you guys fish? How many of you guys, are fi you don't really care what goes on the hook. You don't really care. I'll put whatever on the hook that the dumb fish will bite. I don't care. As long as I get the right bait on the hook, then I can get the dumb fish to take a bite because the fish always looks at the bait, ignores the hook, and then I reel them in, club them over the head, and they don't just eat the bait, I eat the fish. That's the deal, right? Satan's a fisherman. Your flesh is a hook. There's something that you really like. And what Satan is saying is, boy, you know, if you have this desire for something, I'll just bait your hook. I'll gladly, happily bait your hook, whatever you want. I'll bait it, you just bite it, and then I'll reel you in and destroy you. And what happens is people think, well, I won't bite on the hook, I'll just nibble around the edges, I won't get caught. Or sometimes we're foolish, we take the bait, we ignore the hook. The flesh has these fallen, sinful, deadly, devastating, disappointing desires. And when we feed those, then Satan is happy to bait our hook and we bite and we're reeled in. This is where no one, no one started off to be a drug addict. No one started off to be an alcoholic. No one started to shipwreck their marriage because they have no self-control and they find themselves in inappropriate intimate relationships. That's not what you are thinking when you start nibbling. But that's what he's planning when he starts baiting. That's the flesh. So Satan works through the world, he works through the flesh, and then he also works through the demonic. This is the third category. Um, and here explains kind of the war that we see in the world today. 
Now, war arose in heaven. So heaven is a perfect place. It's where God rules and dwells. He makes angelic beings to serve and honor and worship and glorify him. And there's a war. There's a war in the presence of God against the glory of God by the beings created to worship God who became proud and decided that they should sit alongside of God or they should have their own kingdom that they rule over like God's. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. There's the serpent again. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent. I told you in Genesis 3.1, we now see here that the serpent and the dragon are one and the same, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver. Make sure we get all the titles packed up together. Of the whole world... You know what, there's not a place you can go that is apart from demonic influence on the earth. A lot of times people think, we're gonna to go to a different place. Well, Satan could be there too. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So there's this war in heaven and Satan and demons lose, they're cast out, these fallen angels, they come to the earth and they continue their war against God. Now you need to know that Satan is not equal to God. He has a beginning. He's not the creator. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-present. But he and these angelic, demonic, fallen beings, they have a war against God, and now they have brought their war to the earth. And ever since they began their war, death, destruction, devastation, and discouragement have continued unabated. That's why the world is in the condition that it is. Because we are in a war. How many of you, you wake up every morning feeling like you're at war? You're at war emotionally, you're at war physically, you're at war spiritually, you're at war financially. It just feels like war every day and you get exhausted. Let me tell you something about this war. I didn't understand this until some years ago. I was dealing with a friend of mine. He uh, is a Sears instructor with the military. He, if, if you're in combat and you get captured, he's the guy who teaches you and trains you how to endure POW captivity. Okay, so he's the guy for a living. He waterboards people and tortures them for practice. That's what he does. And so I, I, I talked to him, I said, well, explain to me how this, how this works. How do you prepare a soldier heading off into combat to be maybe taken captive without surrendering? He said, well, the key is, number one, isolate them. Number two, exhaust them. Number one, isolate them, get them away from others. Number two, exhaust them, keep them up all night, get them sleep deprived, hungry, tired, dehydrated. I said, what happens then? He said, well, if people are together, they tend not to break, but if they're alone, they break a lot quicker. Same is true. Same is true for you and me. All you Lone Ranger Christians, it's just a matter of time before you get broken. And he said, also we need to get them exhausted. And I started thinking about it. Satan and demons don't get tired. Satan and demons don't take a nap. They don't get the flu. They don't need to go get a cup of coffee. They don't need to go have lunch. They don't need to get eight hours of sleep at night. Satan and demons don't have the kind of physical limitations that you and I have in our humanity. You know what that means? That means this war is one that we are automatically at a significant disadvantage. This is why we need to stick together as God's people, relationships, prayer and support, 
In addition, we need to know our human limitations and when we are most tempted. I believe this is why Jesus was literally hit when he was hungry, isolated, and tired. In Luke 4, Matthew 4, Satan comes and he attacks Jesus. He's hungry. He's not eaten for 40 days. He's isolated all by himself, and he's tired. He's emotionally exhausted. He's at the end of his tether with his humanity. He's just out of energy. But yet he leans into the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit, and he resists Satan with his spiritual authority. And as a result, he is brought through his temptation with a triumphant victory. That's a good thing for us to know. You will get hit when you're hungry, isolated, and tired. And it may feel like, oh, this is so good. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm worn down. Finally, a bit of comfort, a bit of pleasure, a, 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 a bit of a bit of provision that'll make my life a little fun. I've earned it, I've deserved it. I've had a very hard day, week, month, year life. And as a result, I just need a little bit of pleasure. That's when Satan comes and drops the hook in the water with the bait on the hook and says, now you're vulnerable. And that's the war. That's how the world, the flesh and the devil all work together. That's how they all work together. And so when it comes to this issue of the demonic, I'll tell you a couple of things. I, I, probably could do months on this, but there are a couple ways that the Bible talks about the demonic realm working. One is through torment. Torment. Some people are literally spiritually tormented. And let me tell you this, tormented people torment people. Tormented people torment people. People that are haunted, that are harassed, that are bitter, that are unforgiving, that keep reliving their past, that can't accept God's forgiveness and won't extend it to others. They're haunted, they're tormented. Their minds are consumed, their hearts are consumed, their lives are consumed, their emotions are consumed, taking the worst days of their life and then infecting every day of their life. And what happens is tormented people torment people. Some of you have people who harass you, they follow you, they stalk you, they abuse you, they, they, they're unrelenting toward you. You need to have compassion for them. You need to pray for them. You need to forgive them because tormented people torment people and it's demonic. Another way that they work is through counterfeit signs, wonders, and miracles. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2.9 that Satan will try to deceive even the elect God's people. This is where we get spirituality. People are like, I had a miracle. I saw somebody healed. I had a revelation. I saw a vision. I had a paranormal supernatural activity occur. Just because something happens doesn't mean it's from the Lord. There are counterfeit signs, wonders, and miracles. This is why 1 John tells us, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether the spirit comes from the true God. This is why spirituality is so dangerous because it's deceptive. If there are holy and unholy spirits, if we're just spiritual, what we're saying is, I welcome both categories. I welcome the angelic and I welcome the demonic. And I welcome them both. That's what spirituality is. That's what spirituality does. And so we don't want to just be spiritual. We want the Holy Spirit, not just any old spirit. Yeah. Number three, another way that the demonic realm works is through self-harm and death that the goal of Satan is ultimately along with demonic influence to bring death. Proverbs quotes God saying, all who, all who hate me love death. Right? Satan and demons hate God and they love death. That when, when death comes 
it is ultimately not from God. It is from Satan. And let me say this. You know that someone is under significant demonic torment, and this may be working through the weakness of their genetics or their history or their physical life and suffering. But when people get to the point where they are self-harming and self-destructing, you know that something demonic is afoot. Would people hurt themselves? Would people destroy themselves? When people end themselves, you know that something demonic is at work in the world because God wants us to flourish. Jesus says, I came that you'd have life and you have it abundantly. You'd have it in a way that is flourishing, not diminishing. That being said, what is God's plan to fix all of this? What is God's plan to solve all of this? What is God's plan to conquer all of this? Because if this is all we have, we have nothing to be hopeful for. This is why people who don't know God, they are stressed and depressed. And this is why almost every other major world religion and philosophical system always struggles to discourage people from taking their own life. Because if this is all we've got, you reach a point where it hurts too much and you give up and get it over with. But God has another plan. God has a better plan. God has a victory plan. And we read of it in places like uh, Daniel 12 too, and it's about resurrection. Yes, that sin brings death, but it is through death that God brings life, that God conquers sin, that God conquers Satan, that God conquers the demonic, that God brings life. It says it this way in Daniel 12 too, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What he's saying is because sin entered the world, death entered the world, and as a result, the graveyards are full. But one day they will all be empty. Just as the Lord Jesus rose from death, so too we will all rise from death and everyone will be assigned their eternal residence in the kingdom that they are appointed to. Those who belong to God, it says they will have everlasting what? Life. I'm telling you this, guys, when the kingdom comes, there's no Satan, there's no demons, there's no suffering, there's no death, there's no wars, there's no elections, there's no taxes, there's no lock on your door, there's no airbag on your car. You don't need to worry about health care, right? It's the kingdom of life, everlasting life. You know how long everlasting life is? Really long time. That's awesome, okay? And those who don't belong to God, everlasting contempt. You don't want to be with Jesus? You want to be over? here with Satan and demons, you want to do death, destruction, and the demonic, you're going to live somewhere else apart from God's people, God's provision, God's presence forever. I love you. I need you to know that you're going to live forever. The only question is where? We're all going to live forever. We're not just a physical body. We're an immaterial soul. And even when the body goes into the ground, the soul goes to judgment. And one day the soul will re-enter the body and there'll be resurrection like Jesus was raised and we're all going to live somewhere. The only question is, which kingdom, which king? And what even happens is I need you to now understand that God is the creator and Satan is a counterfeiter. And that's all this. This is how this all works. So God creates a kingdom and Satan counterfeits it with the world. That God gives us the Holy Spirit and creates us to be filled with the Spirit and then Satan counterfeits that so that we're open up to demonic influence. That God gives us truth and Satan brings us lies. That God brings us life and Satan brings us death. That ultimately God brings us freedom and Satan brings us slavery. 
And all of these counterfeits are to confuse because only God can create. Satan can't create anyone or anything. All he can do is corrupt anyone and everything. It's all a corruption. So I hit it in the sermon title, so I'll hit it quickly. There's this whole weird, bizarre zombie fascination. Have you noticed that? It's just weird. Like people with their eye sockets, you know, bulging out and, you know, sort of, you know, I mean, it's just weird, right? You're going to have kids coming to your house. They're going to be knocking on the door, you know, and they're going to have like blood coming out and like a hatchet in their head. And, and they're, you know, and you're like, what parent thought this was a plan, you know? Um, and they're going to want candy. I mean, we, we do have the weirdest culture, amen? Just the weirdest culture. Like, what committee came up with this? Oh, you know what children need is more hatchets in their head and candy. We could put those together and call it a holiday. Weird. Anyways, that's what's going to happen. And what the whole zombie fascination is, it's a counterfeit of the resurrection. The resurrection is about dead people coming to life, to live a new life. The whole zombie phenomena is dead people kind of being alive, but living in death. It's, it's a counterfeit of the resurrection. Um, I'll read from the Encyclopedic Dictionary of Cult, Sex, and World Religions. I now have the official definition of a zombie. Yes, we're doing this. It says, a zombie can refer to a snake deity or someone in voodoo circles. So this is all voodoo and witchcraft. Uh, in voodoo circles who as a result of having been put under a spell or having... Uh, taken harmful potions or drugs as has his or her mind come under the control of substances and thus is easily manipulated to perform servile tasks meaninglessly. He goes on to say that voodoo sorcerers attempt to control living human beings or corpses by turning them into zombies. Now some of you say, this is different. Yes, it is. I'll read you one verse that sounds like it, Zechariah 14, 12 and 13. This shall be the plague with which the Lord shall strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. I don't know if they'll get candy, but that's what it says. Now, that being said, that's how we're gonna do it. It is, it is a counterfeit of the resurrection to, to, to have this fascination with that which is zombie. And I didn't think it was real till I went to Haiti. Some years ago, crisis hit Haiti and I was able to bring relief mission and medical supplies and go out seeing people. And I mean, it was right after death and destruction and devastation hit and you know, we're out in the field and we're helping people and raising money and trying to rebuild churches and there's dead bodies all over the streets and I've never smelled anything like it. I had to shove orange peels up my nose because I just literally couldn't even smell um, the, the, the decaying bodies in the streets. It was apocalyptic. And some pastors picked me up. They run a seminary. They're Bible-believing, Jesus-loving. They're even Baptist. So, I mean, you know, so they're conservative, right? I mean, the dude had a his suit on in Haiti, right? And we're, we're in this apocalypse, and he's got a tie on. So he's a conservative guy. And we're driving in the car. I said, where are you taking me? He said, well, we're taking you, Pastor Mark, out to see some of the churches that fell in the earthquake and pray with the pastors. But don't worry, we'll stay away from the zombie areas. Whoa, hey, thank you. Uh, in addition, <laughs> explain the zombie, no zombie zones. You know, like I didn't, I didn't know. There were like zombie zones, like smoking, non-smoking, zombie, non-zombie. What are we talking about, Jack? He says, well, out in some of the rural areas, there are villages where there are witch doctors and voodoo doctors and we have a zombie problem. Huh. 
Let me say this. If you have a zombie, you have a zombie problem, okay? <laughs> it doesn't take a lot to create a problem. I said, well, explain this. He said, well, here's how it works. He said, sometimes a person will be alive, but through, you know, drugs, the occult, demonic activity, sorcerers, voodoo, witchcraft, an unholy, unclean, unhelpful spirit will enter them, and they sort of change personality, and we call them a zombie. I was like, that's a counterfeit of being filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, and sometimes people are dead and their body's dead, and then the witch doctor will you know, conjure up some spirit to enter into the dead body, and then the dead body gets up and walks around for a while, and everybody sort of fears it or worships it or, or gives spiritual authority to it until eventually you know, the body totally decays and then it's over, but it's, a, it's just a, it's a spirit that's inhabiting a body pretending that it's resurrected. It's mocking the resurrection. God is a creator, Satan is a counterfeiter, and he wants living people to be filled with unholy spirits, mocking the filling of the Holy Spirit. He wants dead people to, upon occasion, have their bodies entered by an unclean spirit to mock the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so I'm going to give you one more verse, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. We're going to talk about Jesus' victory. Here's our victory. It's not your victory. It's his victory. We share in it. And you, okay? So you and you and you were dead in your trespasses, spiritually dead but physically alive. You can be physically alive but spiritually dead, meaning you don't know God, you're not connected to God, and just because you're spiritual doesn't mean you're alive. Okay? Okay? in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What he's talking about is all you've got is your old nature, your sinful flesh. You don't have a new nature. You're not a new person with new desires yet. God made alive together with him. This is the good news. God makes dead people alive. God makes spiritually dead people spiritually alive. He makes physically dead people physically alive that sin and death and Satan and demons and destruction are real and so is God's life-giving power. God takes spiritually dead people, makes them spiritually alive. Takes physically dead people, makes them physically alive. God makes us alive. God makes us alive. He goes on to say, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So if you belong to the Lord Jesus, you're forgiven. All of your sins are forgiven. All of your past, all of your present, all of your future is forgiven. Whatever list of accusation and condemnation that the enemy would have against you, it is forgiven. It is paid in full. It is canceled. It is remembered no more in the presence of God through the person of Jesus. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That Satan literally is keeping a record. Here's what you said and failed to say. Here's what you did and failed to do. Guilty, 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 guilty. And then Jesus comes and he takes Satan head on. He lives in the world. He resists temptation. He rebukes the enemy. He walks in holiness with perfect integrity. And then he goes to the cross and he substitutes himself. And he says, you know what? That person that I love so much, they are guilty, but I am not. And they, they are wicked, but I am not. And they are unholy, but I am not. 
and I love them so much I will trade places with them. I will die that they might live. I will take their unrighteousness in exchange for my righteousness. I will take their condemnation and I will stand in their place and I will give them my salvation. You need to know that at the cross of Jesus, there was a cosmic war. This was a battle that had been raging in the heavens that had brought itself down to the kingdoms of the earth and it culminated at the cross of Jesus. Two kingdoms colliding. Two intentions for your life and human history colliding. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers, those are demons, authorities, unclean spirits, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is ancient war language. What would happen is there would be growing hostility between two kings and kingdoms. And it would escalate to the point where it was time for war. And one would lose and one would win. That one would die and one would live. And then the people would call a holiday. They would gather together. They would cheer for their generals. They would say goodbye to their soldiers. That women and children would hope that their husbands and fathers return. And then they would literally march off to war. And there'd be a conflict. And everyone would be waiting in anticipation and expectation. Will we win? Will we lose? If we win, we have freedom. If we lose, they are coming to enslave us all. And if a king won and he conquered their enemies, he would take the conquered general and shackle them up. Would take the leading soldiers and shackle them up. And he would chain them to the back of his chariot and as he entered back to his kingdom, proclaiming his victory, there would be this procession, not only of the triumphant and the victorious, but of the defeated and those who are publicly scorned. And the people would be yearning and eagerly anticipating the homecoming of, of their king and, and the liberation of their kingdom. And they would see off in the distance, here comes our king and he's, he's won his great victory and there's his mighty men and look, there's the defeated foe and the, the king that was against us and the generals who harassed us and those who wanted to destroy us, they have been defeated, they have been disarmed. They are no longer in power, they're no longer a threat to us. They no longer have any dominion over us. And the, there would be this wellspring of cheering, the throngs of celebrating. They'd call a holiday, the kids would leave school, the people would leave work, everyone would take to the streets. And as the victorious triumphant king would march into his kingdom, behind him would be all who battled with him, and then in tow would be those who were chained and disarmed and defeated. And the people would sing and they would cheer and they would celebrate because his victory was their victory and his kingdom was their kingdom and his liberation was their liberation. And you need to know upon the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, our king won! Our king won! He defeated Satan, sin, death, and hell. He triumphed over them. I love it. He disarmed them. He defanged them. He chained them. He drugged them back to his kingdom. And he put them to open shame. You have no reason to fear Satan. You have no reason to give into your flesh. You have no reason to believe in demonic lies. You have no reason to live a life of oppression or depression. 
Your king is a warrior king. Your king is a triumphant king. Your king has a kingdom. You are a citizen of that kingdom and this life is a march toward that kingdom. And the closer we get, we want to sing his praises, we want to celebrate, and we want to prepare for that great homecoming. Amen? Amen. Father God, I thank you for an opportunity to teach the Bible today at the Trinity Church. And God, I love my job. I love that I get to open the scriptures. It is a sword for battle against a real enemy who has taken people, precious people, dear people, loved people captive in war. I pray against the lies, the temptation, the condemnation, the accusation. I pray against the folly. I pray against the flesh. I pray for deliverance and liberation of your people. Lord Jesus, when we get together, we want to remember our king, his kingdom, and his victory. We want to walk together behind your great chariot into your great kingdom, singing your great praises for your great glory. God, we grieve who we are and what we've done, but we celebrate your son, who he is and what he's done. And so Jesus, as we come to worship you now, please fill us with your spirit. Please fill us with your joy. Please fill us with your hope as we consider our king and his kingdom. And we pray your kingdom come in Jesus' name. Amen.